You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Welcome back to the Freedom Pact podcast. And today on the show, I am speaking to Tom Young. Tom is a performance psychologist specializing in team dynamics and leadership. He has worked with teams and individuals at the highest level of professional sport, providing psychological support to organizations and individuals from the world of rugby union, football, boxing, golf, and more. Most recently, he has been a part of the coaching team to European Tour and Ryder Cup golfer Tommy Fleetwood, and has worked as a consultant to both the Belgian national football team ahead of the World Cup in Russia and the victorious European Ryder Cup team in Paris 2018. He is also the author of the book The Making of a Leader, What Elite Sport Can Teach Us About Leadership, Management and Performance, and he is here today to tell us how we can all become an effective leader. So, Tom, welcome to the Freedom Pack podcast. Thank you very much. Okay, so we're here today to talk about this book, The Making of a Leader. So before we dive into the content, for our audience, could you please let them know who you are, what you do, and what notable leaders you've interviewed to build the concepts around in this book? Yeah, so my name's Tom Young. Thanks for having me on. I'm a performance psychologist and I'm the author of The Making of a Leader. Um, The Making of a Leader started out as a piece of academic research, actually. Um, So it wasn't like a master plan to create this book. So I interviewed seven leaders in total. Um, So it was Stuart Lancaster, who at the time when I started this was England rugby coach. Roberto Martinez, who when we did the first interview was at Everton. And the second interview, he was obviously at Belgium, where he is now the Belgian national team. Sean Dyche with Burnley in the Premier League. And then we had two cricket coaches. So Ashley Giles, who is now director of cricket or performance director at the ECB, but was at the time he was at Lancashire Cricket. Um, Gary Kirsten, who was the head coach of the Indian cricket team when they won the World Cup. Dan Quinn at the Atlanta Falcons in the NFL. So I went over and spoke to him. And Michael Maguire from Rugby League. So he was head coach at Wigan Warriors, but then South Sydney Rabbitohs as well when they won their first NRL title. So I wanted to to speak to leaders from a range of team sports, traditional team sports, and get their accounts of leadership um, across those settings, really. When I think about leadership, I think back to any job I've ever worked in. And I always looked at the manager and I always know, I always thought to myself, is this someone who manages or someone who leads Mm. and often it was someone who manages yeah Um, so fundamentally in your opinion what would you say the difference is between someone who leads and someone who just manages Mm. it's a it's a really good question because basically in sport you you kind of need to be able to do both They, they interchange a little bit don't they and it depends on the briefs if you look at the people that i've interviewed you've got titles like performance director um which is, you would say, a broader role than a football manager, 
um, and how we see that. Stuart Lancaster, when he was at England, was probably more, you know, take the more responsibilities than just coaching the team um, and managing the individuals. It goes beyond that to different stakeholders, sponsors, boards, committees, all those kind of things. Um, so I think in sport, they are quite interchangeable and it depends on the specific brief. But if you go back, and for the book, I went back to the kind of origins of those two words. And the origin of manage, I think, is manus, which is about the hand and it's about control. So if you think about that in terms of like the, the managers you've had, probably people that have, they've been around processes, they've been about maybe a, a little bit telling people what we need to do, how we do things around here, um, about performance, achieving things, following a set procedure. Whereas the word um, for, for leadership, I think, came from like an old word, leaden or laden, um, which is about going before as a guide. So that's more about vision, inspiring people, encouraging people along the way and going on the journey with them. So I think if you look at those two definitions or the two origins of those, of those words, then it really gives us a clear distinction. So if you can think of the people that you're, you know, in your brain, who, you, who you're thinking of now in those early jobs or you know, those who've led and those who've managed, and you can probably see that distinction. Someone who's a little bit more short-term, this is what we've got to do, versus someone who's a little bit more, let me bring you on this journey, and a little bit more guiding, I suppose. Um, but definitely in sport, with these people that I've interviewed, I think they have to almost wear both hats, and that's a really rare skill set. Mm. One thing I would add as well is when I think back to um, manage of my, of my past job, I think, in my opinion, managers I've had are people that if we faced a problem they would go straight to the book or yeah. straight to the person who is a level up from them and they say what is the the textbook solution to this problem whereas mm -hmm. any leaders I've ever had are more innovative and they they try to seek out solutions to problems and then bring the team along with them rather than saying okay this is what the book says we need to do so go out and do that you know yeah, I think, there's, I think there's some, there are times when you have to do both, isn't there? And, um, you know, sometimes you have to do things by the book. Um, and we talk about leadership and management. And really, if you can, if you can take those two hand in hand um, and almost not swap them about, but kind of move around with them, then I think you're probably onto a, onto a good approach, really. Um, because if you take a football manager... They obviously have to galvanize a group behind this vision, but equally they have to manage all those different personalities. They have to um, manage the tactics. They're very much more focused on the sporting side, whereas if you look at a broader role where it's about you have to understand different organizations, different departments, different people, and it suddenly becomes much more of a leadership role. And, of course, every, every leader is different. Um, I mean, if you look at the ones that are they're in your book, they come from mm. all different areas. So they're not going to be carbon copies of each other naturally. But are there any core personality traits or core values that you've seen in all effective leaders? Yeah, and, and that's a question I get asked a lot. And I think, and I, I do a lot of work on team dynamics, understanding different styles. And some of these, these seven leaders have done profiles some with me some with other people that we've kind of got a little bit more insight into their actual styles so Sean Dyche talks about his style within the book and you can tell just from watching this guy on interviews like I'm, you, I'm kind of probably not telling people anything they don't already know but but quite fast-paced talks quickly and talks quite a lot quite entertaining but also quite 
tough because he, he talks about this voice, uh, this, this kind of gruff voice, tall, imposing, old central defender um, type, type approach. So he is, you know, if you look at that, you've got someone who's fast paced, maybe more extrovert, quite assertive as well. And then you look at someone else like Ashley Giles, who actually says, I'm an introvert. You know, if I go to a party, I want to I wanna find someone I know and go and have an in-depth discussion. I don't want to meet everyone. So straight away, you've got kind of distinguished different styles straight away from, from those people. So in terms of core personality traits, I think there's a range of particularly extroversion and introversion, whereas in the past, we've associated leadership probably with extroversion. This ability to inspire and influence people has been, and I think this is changing, but associated with extroversion and the ability to do big Churchillian speeches. And I don't think that's the case anymore. And I think the seven people I interviewed kind of demonstrate that. When you're looking at like values, I think you said, I think there's, there's an element of belief. So whether that is assertiveness, the ability to back your decisions basically um, and commit to those decisions and trust them, I think is key. And the ability, they will have taken risks at, at times during their, their careers. And the other one is resilience. So you mentioned they're all from different backgrounds, different nationalities, all had these different experiences. But I would say somewhere in there, some may be more obvious than others, there's been a, a, a part of, or a demonstration of real resilience. So Michael Maguire had his, um, in, uh, his career cut short by an by a injury quite cruelly as a, as a young player. Um, Gary Kirsten dealt with the passing of his, of his father as an 18-year-old while trying to make his way in, in the world. Um, Asher Giles getting released, you know, all these different, you know, and obviously different scale there within those examples, but some element of resilience, because I think that's really important within leadership because it's lonely as well. Um, there are times, even though you're surrounded by loads of people and loads of energy, it all comes down to you. So it can feel really lonely. So that inner resilience or inner grit, I think is, is really key as well. Mm. And that's something I want to get onto because I think we've done 112 episodes now and well, I've heard, heard the word grit yeah. from mm. actors, businessmen, uh, psychology. Everyone's talking about this word grit in personal yeah. development at the moment. I mean, obviously, uh, Angela Duckworth wrote a book on it. Mm. What is grit in this sense then? And how do elite leaders use it effectively and make it work for them? I think, you, so you're right, it's obviously a lot of this has come from this work of, of Angela Duckworth and, and this, this kind of seminal text, really, Grit. Um, I describe it, I do a lot of work um, with individuals or teams around resilience because that's the word that people use a lot. It's a bit of a, it's become a little bit of a buzzword. And I think we associate it with how do you bounce back when something goes wrong? So a player gets injured or something in a business world, something really bad happens, how do we react? And that is one part of resilience. But at the same time, this ability, and this is where we're getting onto grit, I kind of see it as a close relative of, of resilience. It's, it's kind of all part of the same conversation. Um, and it's the ability to endure. It's the ability, ability to keep going. Um, and I describe it to, to young athletes often, as, especially when you, if you consider like a, I don't know, a football academy, where you've got young players who achieve so much so quickly, and then they get to a point where they're kind of may, maybe not making the strides they would want to make. And it's, about, it's kind of about sticking in there and this endurance and this not losing faith in the goals that you've got, not losing faith in where you want to go when it doesn't feel like you're getting anywhere towards them. 
So those, those moments where you come home and you think, I haven't really moved forward today. I haven't done anything. So it's not a setback. It's not a dramatic setback. It's more I've just not progressed. And so it's making sure that you're just taking tiny steps towards those long-term goals. When things are just a little bit flat, that's how I would describe it. And the ability to keep going because we portray life as this shiny thing on Instagram where we're achieving stuff all the time, whereas actually it's those habits and behaviors on a daily basis when we're not moving forward that really get us towards that. So that's how I would kind of def- define grit as part of that resilience conversation for me. Mm. Someone I interviewed a few weeks ago was talking about um, grit and how they sort of tie it in with positive aggression, they called it. Mm. And that made me think in, in the terms of a leader, we typically think of leaders as commanding, assertive, even almost strict at times. Mm. But in the book, you mentioned this word empathy. And a great example I can think of of this, there's, a, there's an entrepreneur called Gary V. And he obviously is a leader. He owns multiple businesses, multimillionaire. And he always says the, the key thing to, to his business is and interacting with his employees is empathy. So you mentioned that's a key component of effective leadership. Why is it important and how can it be used effectively without losing any authority or respect in the process? Yeah, I think, I think it's massive, to be honest, that word empathy or people use emotional intelligence. So I was listening over lockdown. There's been obviously a lot of podcasts and a lot of people sharing information. And I think that's a good point within leadership today. People are willing to talk about it. So I, I don't know, 20 years ago, would I have got seven leaders from different sports, some of them whom are in the same sport and therefore competing against each other to sit down and share their approaches? I'm not sure I would have done. So I think it's changed. I think the conversation has changed. I was listening to Eddie Jones, obviously the England rugby coach. And he is someone, I think, when you encounter him, and I've seen him speak and read his book and stuff, I've, I've never not worked with him or, or kind of met him in any, any detail, but I know people who do work with him. And that kind of hardworking grit in kind of that tough, assertive, commanding, all those kind of words that, that you associate with him. And he was talking about how he's had to change his style. And he was basically talking about empathy. And he, he called it performance relationships and understanding how to communicate with different styles effectively. And if you look at sport now, you know, within the context of the guys that I've interviewed, it's about, it's about kind of understanding that each individual player has their own journey and not always going to be kind of wedded to that club for a long period of time. You know, the class of 92, those kind of um, eras are pretty much on their way out. Um, so then a little bit like, people within businesses, young, younger people within businesses, they might have a portfolio career. So it's, you can't call on that ingrained loyalty. So you have to build relationships with them. And that command and control style of leadership, which, and again, I think we, we've, in the past, we've associated leadership with assertiveness and that extroversion. So the charismatic leader. So I can kind of get you to do stuff and I can tell you how to do it and I can inspire you to do it. But I think underneath that, with all the seven leaders that I've interviewed, there was this degree of empathy, this degree of care about people, even in the ones like Michael Maguire, who's imposing kind of Aussie, tough, you know, big guy. There is this undercurrent of, of caring. Um, and I think it's so important because you're going to encounter within a team environment so many different styles. And that command and control will only work with so many. 
you have to be able to flex your style. I think if you look at Klopp now at Liverpool, I think he does that. I think he does that naturally. I think he is an extrovert. Obviously, he does have that ability to influence people. But I'm assuming, and I don't think he will treat one player the same as the other. I think there will be times where he'll, he'll flex his style to get the message across to that player. So I think it's, it's massively important to be able to do that. And over lockdown, so I was on a, another call with a business leader, a very successful business leader. And he just talked about the ability to know who, who I need to push, who I need to kick, who I need to pull, who I need to leave alone. And it sounds so natural to those people because they've been doing it for years. So it sounds quite common sense, really. But actually, it's the ability to stop yourself from going onto autopilot. So I'm a psychologist, but I'm impatient. So therefore, I'm not naturally a great listener. So that's probably something you would associate a psychologist being really good at, but I have to really work at it because we want to, the brain wants to work on shortcuts. So it wants to kind of respond to our natural styles. And if we're not careful, we miss those opportunities to interact with people and to adapt our styles and to really get our message across. So that for me is, is empathy, to understand where someone else is coming from and being able to adapt your approach accordingly. Mm. It's interesting because I was, when I was going through your book, um, I was almost at the same time I was editing, editing a podcast that actually dropped this morning. And that podcast was called How to Be Comfortable with Being Uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, I picked up on the words in your book, comfortable in chaos. And mm. it reminds me of this sort of uh, stoic philosophy that you see in the works of like Ryan Holiday, where he talks about um, how st- stillness is the key. So yeah. what characteristics do elite leaders possess that help them in being comfortable in chaos? I think it's, it's a really good phrase isn't it to describe sport because sport is chaotic sport on the field is chaotic if you look at a rugby match or something like that but also the business of sport and the cultures of sport and all the media interest around it so when when you asked that question I immediately thought of Sean Dyche and I think he described leadership as as well he he talked about um effectively he he talked about kind of um the hardest thing to do when something's going wrong is to not change anything Mm. is to keep doing what you're doing and keep faith with what you're doing. Whereas in sport, there's so many different shiny things to like look at or uh, change your approach or take someone else's opinion. So the hardest thing to do is just to remain steadfast towards that, towards that goal, that belief in what you're doing and your approach, which is very, very difficult to, to do. I think in order to do that, you have to have some level of experience, but also you have to have a, clear set of values so am I doing things how I want to do things can I look myself in the mirror at the end of the day um that was something that came up with a couple of the leaders that so they talked about decision making and how you know it's just not feasible that everyone's going to agree with your decisions you have to make tough decisions you have to make decisions that don't sit comfortably with you as a leader but if you can do that from a congruent place where you're authentic towards your own values and at the end of the day you come home and you go well you know, I behaved in line with, with how I see the world and how I see my role and you kind of doing your job. Um, so I think that's a massive part of it, being able to stay quite stoic because you are on a personal level, on a deeper level, being true to yourself. And the other side of it is having those pe- the right people around you. So not having people who will just agree with you at all times um, blindly, but having people that you can trust, that you can be vulnerable with, that you can talk things through 
people that might be better than you in certain situations, people who might have more expertise or specific expertise and that you can call upon and really trust and be vulnerable. So I think, I think those things help someone to be comfortable in chaos because you're doing everything you can do. Um, but at the same time, you have to accept that sport is chaotic and it does come down to the bounce of a ball at times and you can't do anything about that. And that's why we love it, isn't it? Absolutely. And I'm glad you said that because that's one of the things or the main things I wanted to ask you is because when I think of when I'm running this podcast or running the the, the newsletter or the more business side of things, um, I meet with, with my co-host and we, and we come up with a, a plan and, you know, there's a reason that plan is put in place because that's what we think is, is the most effective way of running things. Yeah. But then there also comes times where, you know, you get that sort of rush of, of blood or heart or intuition that's telling you to do something different. And, you know, you mentioned in, in sport, you know, when you're, you stick into a philosophy on the pitch, but all of a sudden you think, oh, what if, and you, you already said the hardest thing to do is to, is to stick to the plan. Mm-hmm. I wonder how do you find that sort of perfect marriage between trusting your philosophy but also trust in your intuition in the, in the moment? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And pro- while you were talking then, I was just thinking, actually, you know, you can have a plan. Of course you can have a plan, but there are times, you know, when you just keep doing the same thing and keep getting the same results, you do have to change, of course, and you do have to flex. But I think what I was describing before in terms of that sporting context is that, that kind of concept that everyone has an opinion on what you do. So, you know, if, if someone said to you, oh, well, I wouldn't do that with your podcast, I'd do this, I wouldn't have them on. You might just think, well, you haven't done a podcast, so I'm not going to listen to that. Mm-hmm. Whereas it doesn't stop people going up to an England rugby coach or a football manager saying, oh, you should do this, you should do that. Um, so being able to change when the time is right, I think is important as, as well. But actually sticking true to your, to your approach is, is, is a massive part of it. And then going back to, to that question there, so this marriage between philosophy and, and this gut instinct, I don't, I don't think they're too different. I think having that philosophy and the experience and how you want to do things, I think that enables you to trust your gut when it comes to it. When you encounter a situation that you don't know, that there is no playbook for, um, there is no textbook. You've not you know, like had a scenario planning session where you've just described what you would do in this setting. Um, I think having that clear approach, clear values, clear behaviours of how you do things enables you when you encounter that setting that you don't know what to do it enables you just to trust that instinct so you kind of have to just feel it and you just have to go with it but as you know from i don't know uh, what's the uh, the gladwell piece where he talks about thin slicing and the is it um i can't remember which book it is is it outliers outliers or is it uh, anyway he talks about the art critic who just instinctively knows that a painting is fake Mm. doesn't he and they can't describe why they just say it is and it feels so basic but actually it's the result of years and years and years of experience so when it comes to that those moments those critical moments for leaders where you have to back your instinct and it feels a little bit alien especially if you're someone who wants to plan and wants to have a structure reminding yourself that actually well my gut is kind of there to tell me these things and it's it's not i'm not guessing you know this is based on all all my conditioning, all my experiences, all my beliefs, everything that I've gone through to this point is telling me to do something. 
So it's that point of being able to back yourself when you get to that, um, you know, knowing, knowing what to do when you don't know what to do almost. And, and that's when it comes to being able to marry this thing. And one of the things with philosophy, and I'm kind of smiling when you ask that question because I sat across from Sean Dyche and asked him about philosophy and you could see him kind of physically kind of recoil a little bit at this word of philosophy because he said it sounds so grand and sounds like a guru. Um, so he didn't like the word philosophy, but ironically, the, having that clear approach, which is quite practical, quite kind of common sense and, and things like that, quite simple, is his philosophy, which enables him to then make that trust his instincts when it comes to decisions. Um, but yeah, he didn't like the word philosophy. It made him sound like a guru, he thought. Yeah, I don't imagine that word really fits in with... Uh with Sean too well. <laughs> no, but we, we intellectualize this stuff, don't we? And yeah. I mean, I'm saying that as someone who's written a book on it. Um, but I think it's quite revealing. And a few of the, guys, the leaders said the same thing. This, this approach, this, this philosophy, it's become that a label we'll put on things. Mm. But it's really how I want to do things, how I believe we should do things and what I believe in. Um, but fundamentally, when you do come to making a decision, you do fall back to those core beliefs and values, don't you? Mm. Am I doing the right thing? then you can make that decision so even though we might disagree with the word philosophy because it sounds a bit grandiose but um actually it kind of probably probably suits what we're talking about absolutely why is a sense of balance key or how is it best found for a leader when facing tough or uncertain times this this was a really interesting area because we talk about work-life balance everyone talks about it maybe a little bit more after you know during lockdown and everything like that and people having a bit more perspective but one of the things that came out i think it was roberto martinez talked about it he kind of said he just accepts that (coughs) that there is no balance that it almost just becomes part of your life so the leadership and the job becomes it comes intertwined with everything else it's not like you can compartmentalize because these people go home and they'll be watching a game or speaking to someone at the other side of the world when it comes to tough moments, what balance does um, is give perspective. So with all of them, there was something that they would kind of retreat to, if you will. So with Maguire, it was charity work. He would go to, I think he went to Papua New Guinea and did something great. So they just won the NRL grand final and he disconnected from the world and went back to a place where they just love playing rugby. Gary Kirsten does loads of charity work and has also kind of, um, he's out mountain biking and walking and fishing and things like that. Sean Dice, it's about going back to his old friends, people that knew him before he was Sean Dice, the football manager. Um, I know he's a bit of a golfer as, as well. Dan Quinn um, does a lot of charity work over in the States within the NFL. So they all have these other areas they can go to. But the big one was family. They talked about how their perspective changed um, when they got married, when they had kids. And that during tough times, I think having those kind of anchors really gives you that sense of balance and perspective that, you know, I'm thinking about Stuart Lancaster when England had that really poor showing in the World Cup in 2015. And I interviewed him just before that. And also that I interviewed him after Leinster had won the double. So there's a good period within there where he's kind of had a real kind of setback and his reputation. And then he's come back as this, this brilliant coach over at Leinster. But he... He talked about the pain of not being able to make it right for the family. Um, but, but it being really important that his next job enabled him to see them more. 
Um, so sport is really important, isn't it? And it's really big and it's really flashy and we all kind of spend a lot of time talking about it, but it is just sport. And I think having family um, and having that sense of balance and perspective really enables those people, maybe not to get too high and not to get too low. It's still going to have a, an impact on an emotional level on them. Of course it is because they care, but it just gives you that perspective, I suppose. Let's talk about high performance, which is something I'm very interested in. And in the book, you cite the work of Simon Sinek, who mm. I personally really love ever since I read Start With Why. Yeah. Um, and you hear this word purpose in mm-hmm. any sort of high performance discussion. You'll hear it in um, Brendan Bouchard's High Performance Habits. You'll hear it in Stephen Covey's um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And the best example I can think of with purpose is when Mike Tyson fought Buster Douglas and the odds makers gave Buster Douglas, I think it was 33 to one, a chance of winning. So everyone thought Mike Tyson was just going to steamroll it. And a few weeks, I believe, before the fight, um, Buster Douglas's mother passed away. And in the interviews leading up to the fight, he said, I'm going to win because I promised my mother I would beat Mike Tyson and I would be the best in the world. Mm. And when you watch that fight, and obviously Buster Douglas went on to win it, he cites the reason that he won that fight, not down to skill, not because he was a better boxer, but because his purpose, his reason, his why was much, much bigger than the skill of Mike Tyson. So, in that sense, then, how important do you think purpose is and, you know, in being the driving force behind every, every high performer? Yeah, so in, in that example um, with, with, with the boxing, obviously the, the mother's death's given him this emotional reason that's bigger than just winning the boxing fight. And I think if you look at anyone who sets out to achieve something, you know, on an individual level, if we talk, talk about somebody who wants to run a marathon or even lose weight, if they have a real emotional reason for that um, and a purpose for that, um, then they're probably going to have a better chance of doing it. So if someone runs a marathon in memory of someone or for a charity that's really close to them or because someone told them they couldn't, you know, it's a reason, it's something emotional. It's not just, I want to run a marathon, you know, and I think of um, my granddad who um, smoked all his life. um, And there was a, there was a time when I think, Doctors had told him not to stop smoking, didn't stop. Um, the only time he did stop was when they said, do you want to see your grandkids grow up when my sister was born? And that emotional reason enabled him to stop pretty much overnight. So you, people will be able to think about people who've changed a habit like that, habit of a lifetime like that. And quite often it's that purpose or the emotional component that enables people to do that. So then if you look at you know, the work of Cynic and you know, this element of purpose, I think it's become quite popular within teams. This purpose, this sense of meaning that we've got to go further than just how, you know, what we're going to win, because that's the goal. That's not the, the purpose. Um, the skill for a leader within a team environment is to realize that, you know, like we said before, all these people will have different purposes on an individual level. They'll have different reasons for doing what they do, different whys. Why do you do what you do? being able to connect a team purpose with all those little purposes and enable those individual athletes to see, right, well, my individual purpose will get met by pursuing this team purpose. And there's a connection there. I think that's a massive part of leadership. If you can do that within a team environment, then you're, you're off to a really good start. Um, 
So yeah, I think with a team environment, it's harder to do because of that, because there's so many personal purposes kind of floating about on an individual level, having that deeper sense. Because if your goal is to run a marathon and you run a marathon, then you've done it. So what else is that? It's almost like something we're constantly pursuing, um, you know, and something we're constantly trying to, to kind of drive towards. I was watching this weekend, I was watching the UFC and the, the headlining fight was Daniel Cormier versus Stipe Miocic for the, the heavyweight championship of the world. And what was really interesting about this fight, it was a trilogy fight in which they both won a piece going into it. And the way the fight was sort of promoted was whoever won this fight would go down as the best heavyweight of all time. And so there was a lot of, this word legacy was was thrown around. It was it was Daniel Cormier's last fight, um, and he was saying that the, all he cared about was the legacy and the fight. And, and similarly, his opponent was fighting for legacy, and that led to probably one of the best displays of skill I've ever seen when watching the sport. And I, and I think it might have been tied into this driving force of legacy. And so on that note, is legacy something that? we should all think about when seeking high performance in whatever we do? I think, yes, with a bit of a caveat to that. Um, I think the All Blacks made Legacy cool, didn't they? Mm. With the book um, by James Kerr, which is a brilliant book. And I think those concepts now of the shirt, the emblem, leaving the shirt in a better place, I think it's all really important stuff. But the one thing, and this was, this was from another leader I spoke to, and he said, but they have been winning games for 150 years. You know, the All Blacks are very good at rugby and they can pass and they can move and they can score tries. Um, so I think it's really important to talk about those things. Um, I think they have to sit alongside. So this is those big picture questions. So, you know, that, that gets people, you know, within a business setting, get what's our legacy, what's our purpose and gets people excited, but they have to marry up to these daily habits and these daily behaviors. Um, so I'll often ask people, what are your winning behaviors? So, and they'll, they'll rattle them off quite quickly. What are your losing behaviors? And they'll be a little bit more reticent to that because, well, we don't want to put the losing behaviors up. Um, so I think it's about being able to look in your mirror and be honest with yourself in terms of when you're having a good day and when you're not, what things might stop you achieving those things and marry those habits up to this concept of, of legacy. In sports, the fact is you have to get results. And if you don't get results, you don't have time to build a legacy. So that is one of the facts of sport and business, I suppose. I think the legacy builds into that purpose and the emotional concept that gets people galvanized, that gets people moving towards that whatever success looks like. But it has to marry up to those small habits that we can almost be accountable for on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's, it's really important. I think it, it's a great conversation starter on an individual level, um, you know, without being too morbid when people say, what do you want to be written in your obituary and things like that? I'll probably ask, you know, what would you want on your Wikipedia page or um, someone, I can't remember who, who asked this question, but what, what do you want to do with your dash? You know, Tom Young, 1986 mm. to whatever, what, what are you going to do with the dash in the middle? And those kind of questions, I think they get people thinking, I think they get people creating, I think they get people galvanized, but you then have to take action mm-hmm. on a daily basis. Um, and it's marrying those two things up together. The big picture thinking on its own isn't enough. Um, but it's definitely a concept that people buy into on an emotional level as we want to be part of something that is bigger than just ourselves or the next game. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you mentioned that, actually, because um, 
a few episodes ago now we had on um, a man called General Stanley McChrystal, who is most well known for um, capturing Saddam Hussein. And um, the main, the, his bit of main advice to us was to, like you said, write your own obituary. Mm. And um, I, th- I found, I tried it. And I think what I found most effective about it is it doesn't really teach you what you want to achieve, but who you want to be. Mm. So for you, do you think, or you personally, is it important for you to, to think in that regard and sort of reflect on yourself in, in the things you want to achieve as well? I think as a, as a practitioner, you reflect all the time. Mm. I think it's a really good way of putting it because how do you want to be? That's how you'll kind of be remembered. You won't be remembered for, I don't know, I won't be remembered for writing a book on leadership, I, I, I would expect. And it's how you want to treat people, how you want to build relationships, how you want to connect. I think they're all the things, you know, when you, when you start to ask people these kind of questions, and, you know, when are you happiest? Um, what, what are your most, I don't know, most inspiring moments? All those kind of things. Typically, people come back with things that don't cost money, mm. um, don't involve possessions, don't involve kind of accolades or achievements. It's about people that are close to them. It's about values. It's about special moments with shared people, with, with kind of family or friends. Um, <clears throat> and I think reflection enables people to, reconnect to that and probably in lockdown people have reconnected to that kind of thing as well um you do reflect on your own practice you do reflect on what you got what was good you know if i'm working with an athlete on a regular basis you know what was good what needs to improve what will we do to improve what have i learned all those kind of questions are on the performance level but on a deeper more reflective level it's about the person you are isn't it it's not about just what you do because if you're just chasing victory then those moments are so short then is that is that enough you know to to how you are as a person i when i've interviewed so this this, for this next question the example i'll give is i've interviewed businessmen and um i think of the athletes i've interviewed who've all answered similarly for this Mm. so i've interviewed quite a few olympians um an nfl player boxers and anytime i ask them on goal setting they give me the same answer that the multimillionaires I've interviewed have said. And that is that you think of the, the end goal is important. So you think of the end goal, but then it's about methodically working back from that end goal. And then whilst you're doing that, you end, you end up with a list of the exact steps or mini goals you need to hit to achieve that end goal. So what advice would you give our audience on effective <laughs> goal setting? I've got to think of something different. No, you, um, I mean, no, if, you, not, if you resonate with that, then... I, I, well, I definitely do resonate with that. Mm. Um, but in line with what we talked about before, that big picture thinking connecting with the daily mm. habits. You know, everyone can have a goal. Um, so I think it connects to the purpose as well. But fundamentally, if we're talking about something you want to achieve, mm. I think to have that emotional component that we talked about earlier is really important. So <clears throat> if someone talks about running a marathon, it's not, I just want to run a marathon. It's what does that moment look like and feel like when you're crossing the line? So it might not be win a marathon. It might just be finish a marathon for someone. So getting, so we have one person getting the, uh, the blanket afterwards, having a beer afterwards. One person talked about not being able to walk down the stairs the next morning. So people's moments, how they picture these goals are actually different. So if we all just write down, run a marathon and that's it, we don't do anything else. 
or we don't go any deeper with it, then it doesn't really start to grab you or affect you. Whereas if you talk about doms and walking down the stairs and hugging the loved ones who are watching you do it, or, or even the people who said you couldn't, you know, then that is suddenly much more emotional. So that's your emotional component, which actually builds resilience. If you think about, if you have a really strong goal, that's really, really powerful. And then someone, you come and you pull your hamstring. And it'd be easy if you didn't have that goal to go, oh, I'll do it next year. Whereas in this case, it's like, well, no, this is, this is my goal. This is stronger than that. And obviously sometimes things happen where you, you might have to adjust. But actually the goal and the resilience behind that becomes much stronger than the setbacks you might encounter. So I think that's really important. So to be vivid with what that looks like, to be specific with what it looks like, not to be vague. Um, and then the right, in terms of the advice you've had from people and, and the, the answers you've had from people, it is them working back. Because if I want to achieve this big, stretchy, challenging goal, then I'm going to have to start today. So therefore, what are the process goals? So I need to get, if it's a footballer, <clears throat> I need to make better runs or I need to get stronger upper body or whatever that might be. And that can then translate into those winning and losing behaviours or the winning behaviours. Well, on a daily basis, you can see that. And a lot of athletes like that. They like having that sense of order where they feel they're making this progress. And it goes back to that grit as well. Because if the goal is to run a marathon and you've not run 5K, then it feels so far away. And you're going to have, you're going to have periods where it feels flat. And just those little habits, those little steps, suddenly you look back and you've come a long way. Um, so I would start off with a really powerful picture, which has that emotion. And you've got, to, you've got to harness that to your daily habits. As we start to, to wrap up now, uh, let's talk about books. Obviously, I've got the making of a leader here. This yep. will, of course, impact many people's lives. Um, <laughs> but I love books. Our audience love books. We love to ask this question. What are maybe two or three books you've read in your life that have had a massive impact on you? Um, so it's a good question. Um, Harry Potter, probably. Um, uh, no, um, in, in this field, I mean, it's funny. I didn't, st- I always wanted to write. I wanted to be like a sports journalist. I was always passionate about sport, always enjoyed writing. Um, I never expected to write a book at this point in my career. Um, and it came from this piece of academic research and a conversation with Stuart Lancaster. And he, he read the piece of research and said, this, this could be a book. So it wasn't part of a master plan to create a book. So I'm almost, not by accident, well, maybe a little bit earlier than expected in this, this kind of field of, of being an author, and I've learned a lot. <clears throat> but I've always, throughout my career, I've read different books. So the first book that I read, probably, studying psychology, studying sports psychology, I was always fascinated with culture and, and team, team environments, um, and therefore, obviously, those people who lead these environments. The first book I read was, or the first book I can remember, not the first book I ever read, was uh, Peak Performance which was, it's all about the, the, the lessons that we can take from the world's most high achieving sporting organization. It was Kevin Roberts, Clive Gilson, there's a few others out of a university in, in New Zealand, I think it was. Um, and they looked at um, legacies really, or, or sporting organizations with sustained success. So they had Bayern Munich. I think they had, they had, I can't remember the F1 team. They had the Chicago Bulls. And actually purpose was massive within that. Um, before you know all these before these buzzwords kind of came around it was huge in this book and it was all about the people within it and the, the cultural architects and everything like that was covered in it so that was probably the first book that really kind of sparked that fire for me um which 
and obviously coming around, I think that was 2003 or something like that, when I read that, I might, might be wrong, maybe even a little bit earlier. So you're looking at nearly 20 years, but a lot of it still rings true. Um, so that, that would be one, um, looking at this role of purpose, looking at this, the organisations, and not just the star players, but everything else that goes around it, the ticket office, the, the ground staff, everything around that. It was, a, it was a brilliant book and it was a great time for me to read it. Um, another one, I would say recently, actually, um, is a book, um, Pig Wrestling, it's called. I don't know if you've read this. Um, it's brilliant. So it's written by two, psycho- two sports psychologists who I think they kind of, they've got loads of experience with Olympic sports. It's Pete Lindsay, Mark Borden. And it's really, it's like a fable. It's a really short book, but it's all about how we view problems. So the pig wrestling, how do we wrestle with these problems and how we see them and how we can change the way we see them in order to solve them. You can probably read it in an hour, hour and a half. Um, so I'd recommend that to, to anyone really in terms of how we look at problems and how we encounter those. Um, that was that, and that was in the last couple of years, I'd say, um, maybe a little bit less. Um, so those two... I would then say Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, um, which I'm sure you've probably had before, but everyone I've recommended that to has loved it. Yeah. You know, this concept of this guy just starting out with this, you know, big picture thinking, this big vision of what he wanted to do. Um, and then we talk about resilience, going through lawsuits and from the government and from different companies and everything like that and coming through to create, I mean, imagine sport without Nike. Like, you know, it's, you can't really now. Um, but back then they were they were really small. So that's that's a brilliant book. Should be a film really. Um and then probably just recently, I know you asked for two or three and I'm giving you four now, but um having watched The Last Dance, hmm. um, and I think everyone's watched it and fell in love with that era again and kind of putting Jordan up on this pedestal. Um, you look at the guy who coached that team, Phil Jackson, um, and also coached the Lakers. I think he won eleven titles and three three peaks or whatever it is. And actually managing the personalities, we talk about flexing your style to managing personalities, Jordan, Rodman, Pippin, Kobe Bryant, Shaq, all these massive personalities and, be, and, and actually bringing in quite a lot of psychology, quite a lot of kind of, um, I think it was, was it, uh, Zen meditation, bringing in these concepts that are a little bit left field and getting these characters to buy into that. That's fascinating um, as well. Um, so yeah, I think those those four so shoe dog uh, well phil jackson's book is sorry is 11 rings the one i'm talking mm. about um so shoe dog 11 rings pig wrestling and then this peak performance was probably the earliest one for me i definitely want to check out that phil jackson book i think anyone who can man manage dennis yeah. rodman effectively like, yeah definitely take some advice from him exactly well that came out and i, I remember talking i said to the publisher is there any way we can get a little bit of this kind of last dance phil jackson approach mm. in there and they said, like, it was too late, basically. Um, and I kind of kicked myself a little bit. But that's how the brain works, isn't it? You encounter something and you think, oh, why didn't I put that in? But obviously it was not meant to be. Maybe on book two. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Um, Hopefully it doesn't take me five years. <laughs> if you could broadcast one short but impactful lesson or message that you may have so if you culminate all the experiences you've had in your life, all the lessons you've learned through your interviews, and you could impart one lesson or message and every person on the planet would hear it and you think they'd benefit from it, what would your message to the world be? 
got some good questions, haven't you? Um, I think it'd be easier if I stick to the leadership topic. Um, I think the message would be that leadership is not just for those with the title. It's not just for MDs and head coaches. And I think sometimes people think, oh, I couldn't do that. I'm not a leader. And you can lead in lots of different ways. Um, you can lead by hard work. You can lead by influence. You can lead by example. You can lead by teaching. You can lead by caring about someone else. Um, so there's loads of different ways. It's not reserved just for those people with that, with that title. So being able to influence others. You might, just, you might lead a small group. You might lead one other person. You might lead one really small person through their whole life you know, as a parent. Um, and that's leadership as well. So don't, I would say, don't kind of do yourself down that you, that's not for you because there are lots of different ways of leading um, and you can find the, the right way for you. Amazing. So for this last question, um, the example I'll give for me, um, when I go to bed at night, I can be happy knowing that through my podcast or through any interviews I've done that, or some of the comments or emails I get back from listeners that I've impacted someone's life in a positive way or helped somebody. And for me, that's what makes a life worth living. But for Tom Young, what makes a life worth living? Um, I talked, I talked to clients about moments, like moments of value. So not just winning, but what are these moments of value? Because they can be quite short and short fleeting moments. <clears throat> and I think with social media, we, we put this image across, don't we? This glossy image that everything's great. And actually the world of psychology is not all about just think positive and it'll be fine. It's a lot more grittier than that. It's about being able to navigate different periods and kind of keeping your head get staying quite rational really and when you ask that question you know typically people talk about um or we you know on instagram we'll go to things like possessions or, or what we're doing what we're achieving and actually i think it's what it's what we're actually doing with our time that makes a life worth living so whether that is building connections with people whether that's creating something like you are with your podcast um <clears throat> developing yourself helping others uh, making connections it's what you do with that time so quite often people might say family or friends, but actually it's about what you're doing with those people. Are you, you know, connecting, helping, making memories and all those kind of things, having fun. Um, so what do we do with our time? Um, I would say rather than what we, what we achieve. So when I was a kid, every Sunday we'd go around to my grands and she was, she loved sport. And every, every time, so it's normally Sunday before you went and started the week, she would say, Tom, work hard, play hard. And, to me, to me, that's basically what I've carried on. That's what I try and do. And if I do that, then I won't go too far wrong. Amazing. Tom, making of a leader, tell everyone where they can find the book and connect with you on social media and likewise. Yeah, so The Making of a Leader is available on Amazon and in all good bookstores, um, online or in, in store, if you want to get yourself uh, down to the shops and, and get one. Um, online, I am Tom underscore Cognite on Instagram and Twitter. And the website is cognite.uk.com. Amazing. Tom, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed it. I love the book and I can't wait to see what's next for you, my friend. No problem. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me on. That wraps up today's episode of the Freedom Pact podcast. Until we see you again on Friday, please subscribe on YouTube, which is youtube.com forward slash Freedom Pact and sign up to the Healthy, Wealthy and Wise newsletter 
at freedompact.co.uk forward slash newsletter. Thank you guys so much for listening.